how can we take the thing that we love, whether it's a stage or whether it's an instrument, and tell a story with it in a way that we haven't before. And more excitingly to me, how can we collaborate with other art forms? And I think if you just remain open to that, something really new and fresh will come out of it. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Allow me to describe something I saw recently. It is unabashedly queer and very sexy. It boasts a remarkably diverse cast, and it was created by an equally diverse team of writers and composers. It is set in a space between life and death. It's eerie and seductive. The music is varied and lush and occasionally jagged, and it's visually lush and cinematically inventive. What am I describing? Believe it or not, it's an opera. And the only place you can watch all of its eight episodes is online. I've been describing Desert Inn, the pandemic brainchild of director James Dara, composer Ellen Reed, and the subject of this episode, writer Christopher Oscar Pena. Opera is only the latest form in which Chris has been writing stories. His playwriting resume includes productions, commissions, and residencies at institutions all over the country. Among his most recent productions are the world premieres of his plays A Cautionary Tale at the Flea Theater in New York and The Strangers at the Clarence Brown Theater in Knoxville, Tennessee. Chris is also amassing impressive credits as a TV writer, having written for the Emmy-nominated first season of Jane the Virgin on The CW and HBO's highly lauded Insecure, as well as the Starz series Sweet Bitter. He's currently on the writing staff for Promised Land, a new series that will air this season on ABC. In March of 2020, James Dara and Alan Reed approached Chris to basically be the showrunner for this new experiment of theirs, and Chris jumped in with both feet. The team added writer Roxy Perkins to the mix. Roxy had written a libretto for the opera Prism, for which Ellen won a Pulitzer Prize in 2019. And the four artists were off to the races. Chris spoke to me from his home in Los Angeles. We started by talking about the opera Prism, which Chris had seen and loved. Now, Chris had no background in opera, not even really as a spectator. So what was it about Prism that convinced him to join the creators of Desert Inn? That all three of them, Ellen, Roxy, and James, were really interested in what I was interested in, which is disrupting the form, or at least in a much more straightforward way, creating pieces of art that weren't for the audiences that we've usually catered to. Meaning this piece like was about sexual assault. They cast people who were like getting naked on stage. The the whole piece I want to say was three acts, but they were short acts. So you actually got this whole narrative in like 80 minutes. They had a, a the third act felt like a like you were dropping Molly at a rave while being at an opera. It was crazy. I remember feeling like, oh, this is not meant for an 80-year-old audience who's used to going to the opera. This is like for a 22-year-old kid, which to me has always been uh, a thing that I talk about. You know, growing up in the theater, I felt like when you go to Death of a Salesman, who's that play for? You know, we, we teach it in high school, but no high schooler understands what that play is about or, you know, it's not for them. And so I really loved what they were doing. So 
when they came to me, they said, let's essentially take the opera form and create the first uh, essential, essentially TV series. So instead of building an opera traditionally where, you know, the, the composer really drives this and, you know, it's one composer and one writer, let's write it as if we were writing a TV show. Neither James or Ellen had worked in TV at that point. So I was spearheading that process. And, you know, Ellen, something Ellen says is that it's great that if you're going to disrupt the form to bring in somebody who's not used to the form, right? So I was like the outsider of the opera world. So that's that's kind of the initial impulse. And also at that time, uh, I think Boston, the Boston Lyric had commissioned them to write a show. And so they were like, instead of doing a traditional opera, let's do uh, this digital thing. And so that's that was the first impulse. I said yes right away. I really didn't know what that meant or what we were to do, but I said yes. At that point, we really then I said, okay, let's drive the ship and let's make this as if this was a TV show. So in you know a TV show, you hire a writer's room. You know you have anywhere from eight to twenty-two episodes. Um, obviously, the size of the room changes based on your order. And, you know, those episodes are 30 minutes to an hour. We were talking about doing episodes that were really between 8 to 12 minutes long. And I'll say that also, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what we started to do and what we ended up with. So we said we'd do like 8 to 12. Our episodes that we produced really ended up being, I think the shortest one is like 14 minutes and the longest is like 25 minutes. So we really actually built out fully produced like TV episodes. And, you know, we had also talked about how big the writer's room was going to be, whether it's going to be three people, four people. We decided that we were going to do eight episodes. Once we landed on that number, I part of the reason I love TV and part of the reason I said yes to this project is for me, it's about bringing my friends and collaborators and other artists that I love into the picture. So I was like, as many artists as I can bring in, as, as, as many as I can get is what I want. So we decided on eight episodes. And so I had the opportunity to then bring in seven other writers. And how did you pick them? Were they, were they all, like Ellen says, were they all outsiders to the form? Was that one of the criteria? We hired Roxy just because she was a common thread about all three of us that we all loved and we all believed in. And, um, you know, we're all friends with. So Roxy uh, came on board and she's really the only one who had any opera. I, I will be honest with you. They basically said to me, hire whoever you want. And I, you know, I am a Latino immigrant queer kid from California. And one of the things, having been in many writers rooms is, you know, there's always like only one Latino or one black person. There's only one of anything and 12 white writers and I, you know, had always said that if I had my own writer's rooms, you know, I, I wanted a really inclusive, diverse room. And I wanted, I, I, this is something that it's important for me to say over and over is that it was really, really, really easy to do that and really, really easy to get accomplished, interesting, brilliant, different writers of marginalized communities. So we're out there. Right. You're, you're countering the narrative that sometimes you hear powerful people say is like, sure, I'd like to diversify, but where do I find them? They always say that. And every time I hear that, I'm like, you are not good at your job. <laughs> right. It's, I mean, it's, I mean, truly I could have built five rooms this way. I wanted, I want, there were so many people that we, that we couldn't get who were busy and um, who we wanted. I basically reached out to my friends. And I also want to say that, Part of the reason the people ended up in the room, aside from that they were just brilliant and different, 
is that because this project was so new, meaning we were all truly making it up as we go in terms of like, well, what does it mean to make an opera for TV? How much does that cost? Like, how do you pay people? Who owns the rights? Literally, there were so many of these pieces that it felt like I needed to work with people that I could trust to just say yes, because we all were sort of like, you know, figuring it up as we go. Given that you've worked, of course, in theater and in television and now in opera, what do you think each of these worlds could stand to learn from the other in terms of shaking things up, in terms of taking their art form to the next level? That's a great question. I think that, you know, I think that I will answer that sort of more generally and and answer to why I think I've been sort of doing all these things. When I was you know, like 20 years old, I was a fellow at the New York Theater Workshop. Um, you know, great, great, exciting place. But I had the great fortune of uh, becoming friends. First, he was like an, uh, my mentor, and then I was just great friends with Jeffrey Jackson Scott. He was a wonderful dramaturg, literary person back at the workshop. He back then, I think, was also ahead of the game, which is that he worked in theater, but I think he always wanted to have his sort of like, uh, his thinking was always like, how do we do things that haven't been done yet? You know, how do we redefine theater? How do we redefine dramaturgy? How do we collaborate in different ways? So one of the things that he said to me when I was a really impressionable young writer was, are you a playwright or are you a writer or are you something else? And that really, really, really stuck with me. I always had thought I was a playwright. I always sort of wore that title as like you know something that really meant something to me but as I you know kept working you know it it's just a word but it I suddenly realized how limiting that word was and then I started doing tv and then I started doing movies and then I keep saying yes to things that I thought I'd never do I never thought I'd work in the world of opera I never thought I'd work in the world of musical theater I never really thought I'd write for tv and yet every one of those things is fundamentally what is important to me, which is it's storytelling. And it allows me to broaden my point of view or reinvent how I need to tell stories at a certain moment in time. And that feels very old school to to TV writer who does theater. But to me, you know, being a director and an actor and a writer, all these things are just more opportunities. And I think that's what I would say is the thing that all the art forms, whether it's opera or theater can learn from each other is that we are at a really exciting time where there are many, many, many ways to tell stories. And how can we take the thing that we love, whether it's a stage or whether it's an instrument, and tell a story with it in a way that we haven't before? And more excitingly to me, how can we collaborate with other art forms? And I think if you just remain open to that, something really new and fresh will come out of it. Where did you learn? I think it takes a certain amount of fearlessness to keep saying yes to things that feel kind of completely foreign to you and just taking the big dive. Cause of course there's always the risk of big failure, I suppose. Where, where did, where did that fearlessness come for you? Where did you learn it? I I love, I love that. I want to think about it as fearlessness. I think really it's just that I, I'm a workaholic. I love making work and I love, you know, there's so many, so many parts of our lives, whether it's 
in the theater or TV or, you know, there's always this waiting. There's always waiting for someone to say yes. There's always someone uh, waiting for someone to be available. There's always waiting for a theater to program you or someone to want to give you money. And so in a way, it's like we spend we spend so much of our time and we put so much of our lives and hearts into these pieces that, you know, you write a play, it sits in your desk. Or you write a movie, it sits in your desk. And I think that for me, I need to keep working. And so when somebody gives me an opportunity that, you know, might come to fruition and come to life, I jump at it because it's just the possibility of a new story, but also that it might go into the world and people might see it. And so I think it's almost the other way. It's almost for me, it's the fear of saying no might mean that that story will never exist. You know, it's really easy, I think, for a lot of us to think of scarcity. We're trained that we're not going to get these things and that there's only a limited amount. But I think for me, it's it's important for us to keep looking for avenues that will surprise us and that we didn't think were actually uh, opportunities for us to share voices in different ways. Do you feel, I feel like you might be, no, this is wrong to say. <laughs> What's going to keep you in the theater? I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of I hear that fear and I and I and I used to fear that when I when I was younger and I would see other playwrights do, go to TV and and what I've realized now is that there are two things that are good for us. One is that there is so much opportunity and resources in TV that actually there is no money in theater, right? Like that's just the truth there isn't. And when I was sort of coming up there, there were you either became a playwright and then you did film which was very rare or you became a playwright and then you also became um, a scholar right or you taught playwriting um, at a university and the reality is there's way fewer teaching opportunities than there are playwrights and creative writers who need homes so I think the great thing about tv is that there is if you can break in an abundance of money which I actually think for me, has given me the freedom to like not need the theater. And what I mean by that is not, I still need a home. I still want to get produced. I still want a community, but I don't need to write plays to make anyone happy anymore. And so, because they're not, that's not how I'm making my living. So I've just written what I want to be writing. And actually, th- those are the things that are not getting produced, interestingly enough. I also think, and I, I feel, I hate saying this, but I think it's true. I think the theater is really star fuckery. And I think that the theater is more interested in me now because I'm on TV than I was before, even if I was writing the exact same plays. So if anything, the fact that I'm on TV is allowing me to go back to the theater. And I, and I do think that I'm never going to leave the theater because it's, it's where I love to, you know, people always laugh. They, they always laugh at the fact that, one episode of my TV shows has been viewed by millions of people all over the world. And yet the thing that I desperately crave is to be in a small room with 200 people and that that play will maybe in its life see 5,000 people, you know? And it's like, we keep desperately wanting to be in that room. And it's like the abusive relationship where like, it's never going to treat you right, but you keep going back. It's so unfortunate. But for me, it's like, it'll never, a TV episode as, as uh, or a movie as wide as it will go, it'll never be the same as sitting in a room collectively sharing breath with people who are watching, you know, bodies in space at the same time. Would you, would you ever want to run a theater? 
You know, I, <laughs> I, I think that when I was younger, I really wanted to. That was the dream. And actually, Sean Daniels, who runs Arizona Theater Company, is always trying to get me to to apply. I really, really wanted to. And the only reason I've sort of stepped back a little bit is because I think it would require me stepping away from my TV career in a way that I'm not ready. But if you want to pitch this into the uh, world, uh, you know, Matt Shackman just took over the Geffen and he is a very, very, very active TV director uh, who does like WandaVision and Game of Thrones. And uh, the playwright and actress Ngozi Anwanyu and I always joke that we should co-run a theater together. So if, you know, if, if anybody out there, you know, the CTG, for instance, or New York Theater Workshop wants to take two people of color together. So let's let's talk about TV a little bit. You are, as you said, you're a queer Latino man writing for major TV shows. And it's kind of amazing to say, but that's not in itself that remarkable today, thank God. But still, <laughs> yeah. it, you know, it can't be taken for granted for right. sure. So when when was your how long have you been working in TV? When when was your first I uh, staff gig? I am about eight years in maybe seven eight years okay. wow yeah have you felt a change in the industry in those eight years yeah i mean absolutely the first uh and this is not a secret so i'm just gonna you know it's not the first tv show i was ever on was jane the virgin on the cw and that show when it happened when it got on the air felt seismic in itself like people were like this big latino show there hadn't been one you know on tv for for years but the reality is, as a writer in the room, the writer's room was made up, I want to say, of 10 writers, and the eight top writers were white writers, and me and the, the, two, bottom, <laughs> the two bottom staff writers were the Latinos. So, you know, that show was still mostly really driven by white narratives, you know? And so, and that is true of shows like Orange is the New Black, that is true of a lot of shows that people on the front saw diverse faces. You know, it, it, for me, it was really shocking and, and hard to be like on the Latino show and be one of two writers on it. That being said, as I've gone on, you know, uh, I'm on a show now, which is a brand new uh, show for ABC, ABC being one of the most uh, inclusive networks. And this show is being created and showrun by a Latino man. And there is there are five of us in the writer's room and um, only one of them is white. So it is the first time <laughs> that I've been in a writer's room where it is, um, it is this many Latinos. I did have the privilege also being on Insecure on HBO, which in itself was groundbreaking. And we all talked about how it was so great to be on that show because we were we were all the writers were used to being the one of color in all the other rooms. And on that room, we got to be, you know, majority. But that was rightfully a Black-led show. But this is the first time, you know, that I'm like, with this many Latinos, it's crazy. So what does that feel like? I mean, clearly it's going to change it's going to change the type of storytelling, the the authenticity of the stories. But how does that change your own sense of your own artistry, being in a room like that? The th I mean, the thing that it's really exciting is you don't have to feel like you're fighting for to be visible. That's that is like so uh, just emotionally, it's less exhausting to walk into that room, right? Because you're constantly having to remind people that you have a point of view. But the thing that's really special is. I think that all of us want to tell 
complicated, interesting stories, a lot of times it's hard to write complex stories because it feels like the burden of representation falls on your shoulders. And what I mean by that as an example is, you know, my dad will come see my plays and he'll say like, why couldn't you write like a happy, like a Latino play that shows us in uh, like all our like beauty and goodness. And I'm like, dad, that's not why I got into this. I got into this question, how we behave. But all my dad knows is that he doesn't get to see you know, people that look like him in the mainstream. And so the one time he does, he wants us to be positive role models and people that have, you know, great stories and can succeed, right? And are smart. And I get that. I get that need. But, you know, for me, it's like, oh, God, I have to, like, I can't I can't show the dark side because then we look bad. But that's what I want to explore. And so the great thing on this new show, for instance, that even the actors say is that they're they're always used to being the one who represents the entire Latinx community. And like, how hard is it? You're like, I can't be complicated. I can't be bad. I can't be a villain. I can't be, you know, on this side of the argument because I have to represent all of the Spanish speaking world. Whereas when you have six or seven writers and you have 10 characters, you can write characters that are bad and good and black and white and gray and, and, you know, because you're not saying one thing about all of Latin America or all the Latinx people. You're saying, here, we exist in all these different ways and we can be messy. And that's what I got into. I got into this to represent us in all our complex good and bad parts and to really, you know, try to figure out why we are the way we are. And I think finally having this many voices in the room and this many characters to unpack you know, is allowing me to really go deep and explore as opposed to constantly be worried that I'm misrepresenting, you know, a whole of of a people. It's amazing this varied career you've crafted for yourself. Is there a big, a big scary project? No, you don't get scared. Is there a big (laughs) challenge? Is there a big challenge in the future that you're, that you're dreaming of that you're willing to share? I, yeah, I mean, listen, I think that having my own TV show is always going to be the thing that I'm sort of always gearing towards. But in terms of the theater, the thing that I will share that I have been sort of nervous about is I love to write a musical and I keep being asked to do them because I'm at that place in my career where like the cool movies are, you know, looking for uh, adapters and I keep getting those calls and I keep saying no because a, it takes like eight years to get a musical produced and who knows if it's ever going to make it. So I, I'm, and if you're going to get paid, so I'm like, I'd rather go do TV. But also music to me is still magical. You know, and, I, and what I mean by that is I love theater, I love TV, I love film, but I can see the mechanics of it because I've done it for so many years because I've studied it, right? And music to me is this thing that I don't understand. And so I've kind of never really learned to write a musical. And of course, I've, I've asked several people, David Henry Huang and Itamar Moses, like to give me advices, uh, advices, advice on how to write a musical because I'm so nervous. And, you know, everybody says they said the same thing. Like if, you're, if you can tell a story, you can tell a story, you know how to write a musical. But it still feels elusive to me. But I think this year, there's a couple of things that I'm really in talks about maybe pursuing and um, and doing that for the first time. So that's really the next big thing I think I'm going to take on is doing a big 
big glitzy musical. And, you know, I, I've had productions across the country and, you know, I had a, a play in New York at the Flea many years ago, but I haven't officially made my off-Broadway debut. So that is actually finally going to happen. Um, my play, How to Make an American Son, is going to happen at the Rattlestick next season. So that'll be kind of a big moment for me to, to finally have that happen. That's awesome. Why is it a big moment? Um, I mean, just, just you know... I'm not one who doesn't think that being producing the regions is is important. I love the regions, especially having grown up and, you know, lived in Chicago and California. Like, I think having theater uh, locally is really special. But, you know, we all dream about New York. And The Flea was such a great moment for me. But it was, you know, a tiny, you know, basement theater. And, you know, The Rattlestick is a place that has produced some of the writers that have inspired me and that has, it, it sort of makes it feel like you've made it. And even though like that's, I know that's on my head because I know I've made it, I have a career, I'm, you know, I'm out here, but um, I think it's just to join like the storied history of that place is really important to me. And also to be doing it with a play that's really important to me. I wrote a play about my father and myself and my, and our relationship. And one of the things that I tell people that I think is missing in, our narratives is number one, success and affluence, but also there's every narrative that I've seen of people of color, their fathers, uh, those stories, queer stories. It's always about a dad who like throws his kid out or beats him or hates him. And, and my dad, you know, sent me to therapy to make sure that I wasn't going to kill myself and mm. took me to Madonna, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and is like the best person in the world. And so I want, queer kids of color to know that their parents can and will love them as well. And so I wrote this play that's a love letter to my dad. So to have that happen in New York is really important to me. But, you know, of course, like I'm Chris Pena, so I always want to talk about the heart thing. So the play is very much about what it means to be an American and how, who gets to be an American. And, you know, I, I wrote it at this time when like, it felt like if people of color were not successful or were not working. They were, you know, welfare queens or, you know, they were rapists. But at the same time, if people of color succeed, then white people think that we've taken too much of the pie and we, we take what we is not ours and don't deserve. Mm -hmm. So I think we're really stuck in this position of what can we as people of color, what are we allowed to do? Is, is America really for us? And so this play is really about this question that I think we're really in a great moment of reckoning. And um, I think we are finally starting to talk about just how complicated it is to, to be a person of color in this country. So I'm excited to join that conversation. Does your dad know the play or is he going to see it for the first time at Rattlestick? He is actually, he has seen a reading of it at a, uh, it was done at the Bay Area Playwrights Festival right before the pandemic. And I got to tell you, he, because he's a very, very private person, but the play, I, it's, it really is a love story to him. So I he sat, he and my mom sat in the audience and I remember like my college roommates were there and my high school friends were there because, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area. And when the sort of reading was over, I was outside with my friends waiting for my parents. We could go to, to lunch and we were like, where are they? And I walked back inside and my father is like surrounded by 20 
audience member is like just holding court about like what it meant <laughs> to be in this place to be my dad. It was so crazy. He's um so he's very he's very proud of it and he's very happy and and I'm excited for the world to see it. That is an achievement, my friend. Yeah, finally, finally. <laughs> that's thank yeah. you. You know, you're you're always like you're always trying to make your parents happy. So I was like, I did, I did the thing that I've that I've uh, that I, I can like retire now because my dad smiled. If you'd like to learn more about Chris and read a longer version of this interview, please head to uncsa.edu slash art restart. If you enjoy this and our other episodes, won't you leave us a rating, maybe even a comment to wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow or subscribe so you don't miss any of the inspiring artist changemakers we'll be featuring in upcoming episodes. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Pierre-Carlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Keenan Institute for the Arts, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>